Hi, and welcome to the Branch Online Sermon. Throughout uh, August and September, we're thinking about what it means to live together as God's church. Last week, we tried to let the Bible shape our expectations for the church. Uh, we saw God's glorious vision for the church to make his wisdom and glory known on earth and in the heavenly places. We also saw the difficult reality of the church this side of Jesus' return. The church can be a place of struggle, disagreement, weakness and sin. Today we're thinking about what the church is. I don't know if you've ever thought about that question before or not, but whether you have or haven't, before we start, why don't you pause the video and take a minute to turn to the person next to you and ask them what they would say the church is. So we might all have lots of ideas about what the church is, but what we really need to understand is what God says about the church. And to understand that, we need to look at the Bible. There are lots of things that the Bible says about the church. One person has counted that there are 96 pictures or 96 metaphors of the church in the New Testament. I think 96 is probably a bit of a stretch but the point is that the Bible uses lots of different images and metaphors to draw out aspects of what the church is. But in all those different metaphors uh, and images, is there a center? Is there a core? Are there some really key ideas that come up in lots and lots of places? And the answer is, I think, that there are. And one of the places that pulls together some of those ideas about the church is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 to 22. And so today we're going to be focusing on that passage and what it has to say about what the church is. If you haven't read that passage yet, then please stop the video and read that now. Paul begins this part of the letter to the Ephesian church, oddly enough, by talking about national division. He says in verse 11, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. National division seems like a pretty odd place to start when trying to talk about the Church of God, but Paul is not just talking about any national division. He's talking about the dividing line in the Old Testament between Israel and the rest of the world. The people of Israel were the people of God, and they had received the promises of God and the words of God, the promises about redemption and about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Paul is simply pointing out that if you weren't a citizen in Israel, then you didn't know about God's promises and about Jesus. Uh, and so you didn't have any hope and you didn't know God. It was only by coming into contact with the people of Israel and hearing that message that God had entrusted to them, it was only by doing that that people could come to know about the true and living God. That boundary line between Jew and Gentile was not a hard and fast dividing line. Non-Israelites would join themselves with Israel and discovered, uh, they would discover God's grace and they would trust in him and love God. You might think of people like 
Ruth in the Old Testament uh, or uh, others as well. Uh, but unless someone identified themselves with Israel, they were, as Paul says, without hope and without God. So Paul is simply starting off by saying that every person in the world who didn't know the message of God, uh, didn't know the message that God had entrusted to Israel, that person was by nature estranged from God. Now you might think then that the people of Israel themselves were not estranged from God. I mean, they had the message. But actually Paul doesn't say that. It turns out that even Israel was not in such a great place either. In verse 15, Paul writes that God's purpose was in one body to reconcile both of them, that is, both Jew and Gentile, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Then he goes on to say in verse 17, He came and preached peace to you who were far away. That is, the Gentiles, the Gentiles were far away. And he came and preached peace to those who were near. That is, the Jews. The Jews were the people who were near. In other words, both Jew and Gentile needed to be reconciled to God. The Gentiles were far away and they needed to be reconciled to God. And the Jews were near and they need to be reconciled to God. The exact nature of the problem uh, between all human beings and God has already been outlined uh, at the beginning of chapter 2. Look back at chapter 2 verse 1 and it says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in all those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So here's the problem that God spells out in those verses. We are by nature, as human beings, utterly corrupt. We hate God. We're enslaved to Satan. And hence, we're estranged from God and we're objects of his wrath. We, we spend our days shaking our fist at God. So what was God's solution? What is God's solution to that hostility between us and God. God's solution, says Paul, was to reconcile us to God through Jesus' death on the cross in our place. In Jesus' death, God has put away his hostility toward us uh, and uh, put away the hostility that resulted from our utter rejection of him. And now, verse 19, those who trust in Jesus are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. That language of citizens and members of God's household is nothing less than an Old Testament way of describing the people of God or the church of God. So in answer to the question, what is the church? The most fundamental answer to that question is, church is the collection of sinners reconciled to God through the death of Jesus. The church is the collection of sinners reconciled to God through the death of Jesus. Now that might seem like a rather obvious point, but it's 
absolutely crucial that we remember it. The church is not a group of people committed to working their way to God. Uh, it's not a group of people that are trying to climb up the ladder to God, trying to improve their moral condition in order that God might accept them. Uh, they're not simply trying to improve the moral condition of society. The church, ideally, is the collection of people already reconciled to God through Jesus. But it also means that the church is not a collection of perfect people either. The church, by definition, is a group of sinners who are reconciled to God because of their trust in Jesus dying on their behalf. The church is not a collection of righteous people uh, who are reconciled to God. It is a collection of sinners, uh, enemies who have been reconciled to God. We discovered last week that the church on earth, this side of Jesus' return, will always be a mixed church. That is, a church full of people who are really Christians and also sometimes those who are not Christians. There are true Christians who flee sin and pursue righteousness and trust in Jesus. And there are false Christians who are indifferent to sin and who don't call on Jesus and are not trusting in Jesus. They're relying uh, on themselves or uh, on somebody else or on something else. But even if you gathered all the true Christians into a single church, even if you could purify the church on earth and get rid of all the people who were just pretending to be Christians, even if you could do that, you would still find that you had an imperfect church. You would still have a church full of sinners. <laughs> but what would make them the true church is that they were a collection of sinners who have been reconciled to God by the death of Jesus. Sinners who have been justified, reckoned to be righteous by the death and resurrection of Jesus in their place. So the fundamental identity of the church is that it is a collection of sinners who have been reconciled to God through Jesus' death. But actually, it's more than that too. Paul says that being part of the church is an existential reality as well. That is, being part of the church changes us at the level of our existence, at the level of our being. Look more closely at what Paul says in verse 15. He says, God's purpose was to recreate in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Remember that in the beginning of chapter 2, the predicament, the problem that we all find ourselves in apart from Christ is total corruption. We hate God, we're enslaved to Satan, we're enslaved to sin. But notice too that God's solution is not only to reconcile us to himself through Jesus' death, not only to put aside the penalty, the punishment that we deserve because of our sin. God's solution is not only to do that, but also to create in Jesus a new humanity. Jesus entered our world. He took on our humanity. He entered into the corruption of our world and he overcame it. And in himself, in taking on our humanity, he forged a new humanity through his life and then his death and resurrection. Jesus, by taking on humanity, transformed it, perfected and glorified it. And if we entrust ourselves to him, if we put ourselves under his loving authority and care, 
then we share in that new humanity. Jesus makes us new creations like like him. He, he gives us the Father and the Son, send us the Holy Spirit so that we might be new creations like Jesus. Uh, back in chapter 2, Paul says that although we were spiritually dead in Christ, believers have been raised to life. Although we were corrupted by sin, believers have been created anew in Jesus to do good works in loving service to God. Why is it important to know that God not only reconciles us, but remakes us in the image of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Why is that important? It's important because it means that church membership is more than just a matter of ink on paper. It's more than just having signed on the dotted line of church membership. It's more than just being committed to a group of people. It's more than just turning up to the same building once a week, every week, week after week, year after year. It's more than just having your name on one of the church rosters or putting money in the church collection bag. It's more than having been baptized. It's more than just having stood up once and given your testimony. Some of those things are important and some of those things are more important than others. But belonging to the church of God is immeasurably more than any of those things. Belonging to the church of God, the church of God throughout all ages, is something that God does through his Holy Spirit. Fundamentally, belonging to the church is not something that you can do. Belonging to the church is something that you need God, you need to ask God to do for you and in you. You need to ask God to reconcile you to himself through Jesus' death, to put away the the punishment that you deserve because of your sin against God. And you need to ask God, having done that, to give you his Holy Spirit, to unite you through the Spirit with the Lord Jesus Christ, to make you a new creation in Jesus Christ. That is how you become a member of the true church, the church of God in Jesus. I wonder if you've ever asked God to do that, to make you part of his church in Jesus Christ. You might have asked God to save you, but but salvation means more than just uh, individual escape from God's punishment. Salvation means being brought by the Holy Spirit into uh, the church of Jesus Christ, into his body. Uh, We need to ask God not just to save us, but to save us from our selfish individualism and into a body of sinners reconciled to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the great and wonderful thing is that God says that anyone who comes to him through Jesus, he will hear, he will answer that prayer. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, says God. So what is the church? The church is the collection of sinners reconciled to God through Jesus' death and uh, and resurrection. The church is the collection of reconciled sinners recreated through the power of Christ. But that reconciliation with God and recreation into the one new humanity in Jesus has massive implications, obviously for our relationship with God, But it also has massive implications for our relationships with each other. Not only has God set aside the hostility between 
uh, him and us, God has also, in doing that and flowing from that, he has set aside uh, the hostility between us and each other. Our new relationship with God creates a new relationship with each other. God has made the two groups one, Jew and Gentile, and formed one new humanity so that now our identity in Christ trumps every other identity that we have. Paul says uh, later in verse 19, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. We were foreigners, but now we're citizens together of the same city, God's city, God's new creation in Jesus. We were strangers, but now we are members of God's household, members of God's family. That isn't just a label, you know, a sticker that we put on, member of God's family. Uh, that is something that changes at the very level of our existence. We've been reconciled to God through the death of Jesus, and we've been reborn as children of God. We now share the same DNA as God, uh, through the Spirit uniting us with the Lord Jesus, we share something of who God is by our union uh, with, with uh, Jesus by the Spirit. And in doing that, in remaking us uh, through the Spirit into the image of God, uh, in doing that, Jesus has abolished the great divisions between Jew and Gentiles. Uh, so listen to what God says in Galatians chapter 3. He says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. There's neither Jew or Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. That new identity that the church has, that Christians have as the new humanity in Christ, the family of God in Christ, that new identity transcends any other identity that we might have. Age, ethnicity, gender, class, education, interests, favorite sport, whatever. People often ask us, who are you? And we say, well, you know, I'm Carl and uh, you know, I play the trombone and, and these are all the things about me. So often the things that uh, secondarily important to ourselves, we make as primarily important. I'm Carl and I like chocolate. Uh, but, but God says, the Bible says that the most important thing about us is that we as Christians, as believers, have been reborn into the family of God. Don Carson writes in his book, Love in Hard Places, ideally, the church itself is not made up of natural friends, it's made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collection, but because they all have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. The irony is, though, that we often believe that when it comes to the big differences, but we struggle to believe that when it comes to the smaller differences. We love stories like the story of Corrie Ten Boom, you might know it, who uh, she met uh, one of the former Nazi concentration camp guards who brutally treated her and her sister. She met him after the Second World War, uh, in a church, he'd become a Christian. 
uh, and uh, and she was able to reconcile with him. She was able to forgive him. And we love the image of those people uh, for being together in the church, sworn enemies reconciled by Christ. We love that. But when it comes to small differences, so often it seems so difficult for us to overcome them. I wonder if you've ever said or uh, merely thought or maybe heard somebody else say, there's no one here my age. Or maybe there's no one here my children's age. Uh, or perhaps you've said there's no one here is the same with the same interests as me. But what all of those kinds of sentiments totally fail to understand is they fail to understand what the church is and what the church is not. Where do you find in the Bible a portrayal of the church as a group of people your own age or with the same interests as you? It doesn't exist. But worse than that, that sentiment has the potential to absolutely cripple the beauty of the church of God. Imagine if one of our missionaries overseas said something like, I can't be part of this church where I am in this country. I can't be part of this church community because there's no one here like me. There's no Australians here. There's no one here my own age. There's no one who shares my interests. There's no one here who even speaks my language. There's no one here who's my children's age. So I'm going to leave the mission field to find a church where I fit in. Imagine if, they were, if our missionaries said that. It would be utterly ridiculous. In fact, it would be an utter betrayal of God and of their ministry. So why wouldn't we think that it's a betrayal of God and the ministry with which God has entrusted us to say the same thing about our church and our situation? That's one of the reasons that since we've restarted services at Innocent Street, we've been breaking into little groups to pray and to reflect together on the sermon. We're doing that because by doing that, we get to relate to all kinds of different people, young and old, male and female, Australian, Chinese, Malaysian, South African, South American, Dutch, whatever it is, we get to relate with all those different kinds of people. A few weeks ago, I got to sit with a family after the sermon to hear what the kids had understood from the sermon. It was so encouraging. In all my time in a church, I've never, I, I, don't, I cannot recall another opportunity where I've been able to do that. But what a blessing to hear that. Another time I was able to pray with an older person and two young Christians who had come to the church for the first time. The older lady prayed the most beautiful prayer for those two people that she'd never met. And it was such a privilege to be part of that. And it was such a rich opportunity to do that with two first-time visitors, to do something with them that is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. That is to pour out our hearts together to our loving God and Father in heaven. So what is the church? The church is the collection of sinners reconciled to God through Jesus' death and resurrection. The church is the collection of reconciled sinners recreated through the power of Christ. The church is the collection of recreated sinners united together in the family of God. But last of all, the church is a building being built together. God tells us in verse 19 that believers are members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself 
as the chief cornerstone. In him, in Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. People often rightly say that the church is not a building. And that's true. The branch Christian church is not the building in Innocent Street. The branch Christian church is the people, the sinners who have been reconciled to God through Jesus. But in another way, those sinners reconciled to Jesus are like a building, the Bible says. That is, they have a cornerstone, a block, from which the whole building gets its alignment. The cornerstone was a block that would be used to plumb and to uh, set out uh, the whole building that uh, people were building in the ancient world. Uh, that cornerstone, the Bible tells us, is, is Jesus. As a church, too, we have a foundation, the Bible, the teaching of the prophets and the apostles. But more than that, as a church, we're being built together. Look at verse 22. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. The Bible says we are a building that is in the process of construction. And that construction involves us not just being built up individually, it involves us being built together. It involves us being built together into one building. Lots of uh, pieces being put together to form a building, one building. And Paul says that that process involves being built together in particular, in a local church. He says in verse 21 that God is building his church, his worldwide church, but then he adds in verse 22 that you too are being built together. The universal church is being built by God's spirit, but you, the Ephesian church, are being built together where you are. You as well, you there in Ephesus, are being built together into one building. What is true of the universal church across the whole world is also true of the local church in Ephesus. It's true of the local church in the branch. What is largely invisible with respect to the universal church of God across the world becomes visible and demonstrable in the local church. As part of building together his worldwide church, God places us into a local church to grow and be built. That doesn't mean that as a local church, uh, we, need, we need to separate ourselves off or we can separate ourselves off from uh, what God is doing in other parts of the world and other churches uh, or from other Christians. But it does mean that our primary place in which God is building us is here in this local church or wherever you are in the local church where God has put you. As the Ephesians were being built together in their church, so God was building his worldwide church. As we are being built together in this church, so God is building his worldwide church. A brick on its own is not a building. It's just a brick. And in the same way, we can't be Christians on our own. We can't be on our own and not part of a local church because a Christian on their own and not part of a local church is not part of the people of God. They're not being built together into God's dwelling place with other Christians. To be a Christian means to be being built together with others in the context of a local church, a local gathering of believers who have not only committed to God, but who have committed to each other. So 
if you're trying to be a Christian on your own, then please realize that it's not possible. You can't do it. You need to be part of a local church. If one of the outcomes of COVID for you has been that you've drawn back from the local church to try and be built up on your own or just with your own family in your own home, please realize that being a Christian means being built together into a building where God dwells. It involves other people, not just you, not just your family. Being the church of God means being built together into the building of God uh, in, in the setting of a local church. What is the church? The church is the collection of sinners reconciled to God through Jesus' death. It's the collection of reconciled sinners recreated through the power of Christ. It's a collection of recreated sinners united together in the family of God. And it's the people being built together across the world, but also in little outposts of people who gather together in local churches to be built together into the dwelling place of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your church. Thank you so much for reconciling sinners to yourself through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And thank you that you have not only reconciled sinners, but you have remade them in the image of Jesus. We have been reborn, all of us who believe and trust in Jesus. We have been reborn. We have been united with Christ by your Holy Spirit. We share something of your DNA. We're being made like Christ, uh, holy and righteous. Lord, we thank you for that. Thank you that we've been united together in one family, that the dividing wall of hostility has not only come down between us and you, but it's, become down, it's come down between each other. Lord, forgive us that we don't always live that reality. Forgive us that little squabbles and struggles and disagreements so often get between us. Lord, forgive us for that. And help us to be knit together more and more uh, as one people united by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, united by one spirit who dwells in all of us. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, build us together into one building. Lord, we also want to confess that so often we try and go it alone. We try and uh, build ourselves up in our own uh, rooms, in our own houses, uh, Lord, without others. But Lord, your word tells us that your purpose is, your plan is that we be built together with others, that our lives become in, intertwined with them, uh, and that through that we grow together, and not on our own, but we grow together into a building in which you live, a building which is for your glory, a building which manifests your glory in the world and in the whole universe. Lord, we pray that you would do that. Lord, thank you that we can look back over all the years of the branch and see that you've been doing that here in this place. Lord, thank you that you have grown us, that you've not only grown us individually, but you've grown us together. And Lord, we ask that you would continue to do that. Lord, we ask that we uh, would be a glorious church here in Kings Meadows, here in Launceston, a glorious church uh, that is for the glory of your name. Lord, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.